You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Congregation, let us now turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. I've been in the midst of a series of sermons dealing with Elijah and Ahab. And the series began toward the end of 1 Kings 16, or Ahab becomes king, and he's a wicked king, and he does more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any other king that had ever come before him. He rebuilt the walls of Jericho through Heel of Bethel, and therefore God pronounced a curse upon Israel. The curse came in the form of a drought, and Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, announced this. And during this time of the drought, three years or three and a half years, Elijah's been out of Israel. And now in 1 Kings 18, he returns, he meets Ahab, and he tells Ahab to assemble the prophets of Baal, because there's going to be a showdown on Mount Carmel. So that's where we pick up our reading. 1 Kings 18, we'll read verses 20 to 40, and our text this morning will be verses 20 to 29. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two options, two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. So they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, 
Fill four large jugs with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we have just read in our text this morning is similar to what's been going on throughout the narratives between Elijah and Ahab. God Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, does not mess around in the covenant. God is patient and long-suffering with His bride, His people, and yet God is also jealous of their devotion to Him. Sometimes in the Scriptures, God shows His anger and wrath, and it may be a bit of a surprise to us. We live in a day and age where the love of God is the only attribute of God people want to hear about. And yet the love of God is the exclusive, or rather is special and exclusive. God will not put up with unrepented sin. We just sung of this. We just confessed our sins once again. We sang, none can remove sin's poison dart or purify our guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. So deep is the corruption of humanity. And yet here we sit. We open the Scriptures, and on the scene walks Israel in Ahab's day. God had already been punishing them for three years with the drought. The context of our text is the land is parched. The ground is cracked. The people are thirsty. The animals are thirsty. And when there's a drought in the ancient world, people die. They had fallen under the covenant curse of God. And what the people didn't realize is they are thirsty was that their biggest problem wasn't that there was a drought in the land. Their biggest problem was their relationship with Yahweh, with the true God. God has always been dealing covenantally with His people. They were not walking in the way of the covenant. God had promised them something, gave them the obligation to live before Him, to worship only Him. And the Israelites had turned to follow the Baals and the Asherahs. They had followed their wicked king Ahab, and his even more wicked wife, Jezebel. Keeping the commandments of the Lord were far from the mind of the Israelites. After all, how could they worry about the law of God when they were thirsty, when they're suffering from a drought? And here is where our text hinges. 
here's where the narrative is raised to a new level. It's about a relationship between the bride and the bridegroom. And that relationship has been shattered. It has been broken because of an unfaithful bride. How will the bride, the Israelites, respond to their bridegroom? As we come to our text today, we are ready for the showdown of the gods. Baal on the one side, the most popular god of the day, 450 prophets, and Yahweh on the other side, one known prophet named Elijah. We'll divide this sermon into two parts, the first half this morning, the second half this afternoon. This morning our theme will be, Our Lord through His servant Elijah sets the stage on Mount Carmel. Our Lord through His servant Elijah sets the stage on Mount Carmel. First we'll see the opening question. Second, the sacrificial arrangement. And third, Baal's loud and bloody sacrifice. First, the opening question. At the end of the previous passage, just before our text, we saw that Elijah met Ahab. After three and a half years being away, he summoned Ahab. Elijah called Ahab to himself, something a prophet wouldn't ordinarily do to a king. Nevertheless, Elijah calls Ahab and he tells him to assemble Israel, bring them together, call together the prophets of Baal and Asherah. This would have been quite a religious gathering. So Ahab did this. He called the prophets of Baal, told them to meet on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel essentially could be something that's 18 miles long, going all the way from the Mediterranean into the mainland of Israel. But there's a section of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel being a very lush mountain, lots of vegetation. There's a section where there's a natural amphitheater where people could theoretically sit to watch what was going to take place. This is near modern day, the modern day city of Haida. This has been believed to be the place of special worship on Mount Carmel. This is likely what our text is referring to. Mount Carmel, as you know, boys and girls, is a very important mountain in the Scriptures. It had one time been a place of worship given for the northern tribes that they can worship the Lord. But as we'll see in the coming verses, those days of worshiping Yahweh, worshiping the Lord, are long gone. That altar, it's been torn down. There's a new god in town named Baal. And the worship of Baal has taken over Mount Carmel. Before Israel conquered the land, Mount Carmel was known as the main worship center of Baalism. Here's the center of Baalism. Here in Elijah's day, they are in Baal's domain. To put it in sports terms, Baal has home field advantage. They're on his turf. They're in his place. The cards were theoretically stacked against Yahweh. We're on Baal's home turf. There are 450 prophets to the lone prophet of Yahweh. Once again, and this is important, we see that through weakness, through what the world might call foolishness, we are about to see the power and the might of God. 450 to 1. Who's going to win that? Weakness, is, weakness in the eyes of the world elevates the glory and the power of the true God. Nevertheless, before the main event gets underway, Elijah has a probing question for the Israelites in verse 21. 
If you have your Bibles open, look back to verse 21. He asked this question. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. You see the word Lord there is all capital letters referring to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. If Yahweh is God, then worship Yahweh. If Baal is God, then worship Him. How long will you falter between two opinions? Elijah addressed this question to the covenant people. They had been living in rebellion to God, to Yahweh, and God had been patient with him. The worst wickedness was taking place. 450 prophets of Baal. What ethnicity do you think they were? They were Israelites. Following Ahab, their Israelite king. They had been leading the people. They had been living in outright rebellion. And yet God had been patient with them. He had been to the people a husband, faithful and true, graciously providing. And Israel had been unfaithful in response. Israel was as Gomer, the harlot of the wife of Hosea. This was the picture of Israel. She had turned to another husband, Baal. Baal's name literally means husband. She had turned from God. And yet God was dealing covenantally with them. You think, but there's a drought in the land. And this drought was given by God Himself. He said, this is my punishment. A drought. You can see the grace of God in that. Because if God wasn't going to deal covenantally with the Israelites, He would have left them. He would have treated them as pagans, as heathens, as some other nation, like the Philistines. But He didn't. He punished them. Covenantally. And so Elijah places the question before them. How long will you waver between two opinions? What Elijah is asking the people here is do they still stand behind the marriage vows that they have made to the Lord? In Joshua 24, Joshua asked a very similar question. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You have two choices. The Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, or the gods of the land. The gods of your forefathers. Who are you committed to serving? In Joshua 24, the people responded in a covenant, covenant renewal ceremony. They committed themselves to serving the Lord. Now when Elijah poses a very similar question, you see how the people responded? Yes, we will follow the Lord. No. Verse 21 says, but the people said nothing. The people said nothing. They answered him not a word. To put this in perspective, brothers and sisters, the people were thirsty and hungry and the land was starving. The drought had lasted so long and Elijah said that there would not be any rain until he said so because he was the servant of the Lord. Certainly the followers of Baal, the prophets of Baal would have been saying, the problem is with Elijah. He's the one to blame for this. When Elijah returned to the land and met Ahab, Ahab greeted him and said, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Elijah wasn't the troubler of Israel. Ahab was the troubler of Israel. The Israelites wanted rain more than anything else. However, rain was not their greatest need at this point. The greatest need 
was repentance and faith in Yahweh. This is yet the principle that often is not quickly grasped by God's people, even in this day. Pastors and elders are oftentimes speaking with saints who are in this very position. They want to be delivered from some difficulty in their life. You see, Israel thought that the cause of their problems was this horrible drought in the land. If the drought was gone, everything would be okay. But this is where they were wrong. The cause of their problem was sin. The consequence of their sin was the drought. The cause of their problem was sin. The consequence of their sin was the drought. You cannot remove the consequence if you do not remove the cause. It does no good to put a band-aid on cancer. God's method is radical surgery. Heart-melting surgery is what the people stood in need of. But all they could think about was the fact that their bellies were empty. They were thirsty and they were hungry and their animals had no green grass to eat. So Elijah says, how long? How long, people? Our text says, how long will you waver between two opinions? Literally, this means, how long will you limp from one side to the other? They're switching the sides of their limp from their left leg to the right leg, from Baal to Yahweh. But by this point, it's pretty much just Baal. They've given themselves over to Baal. How long will you waver? Jesus said that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is the type of radical surgery we are called to perform when we find ourselves in sin. We might not have thrown away true worship like Israel did, but a healthy knowledge of our sin will remind us just how easily sin creeps into our hearts and minds. We must deal seriously with it. And when it creeps into our hearts and minds, it also creeps into our homes and into our workplaces. And it begins to affect our whole entire lives. What we watch on television, what we look at on the computer. Devotion to the Lord is to be complete. Just as in marriage. Your spouse expects and God expects that you have eyes only for the one that you stood in front of God and His people and said, I do. I will love you. I will be faithful to you. I will live a life of fidelity to you. What does your husband or what does your wife expect of you? You and another woman? I'll have eyes for you mostly, but sometimes, sometimes other women, other men? Of course not. Do you think God expects any, anything less from His bride? And yet the enticement is there. The Lord expects this and the harlot of Babylon, the seductions of the world, continue to seek to entice us. But flee, brothers and sisters, from sin and cleave to God. Don't misunderstand what's taking place. Don't misunderstand the difference between a cause and a consequence. You must root out the cause before the consequence can be dealt with when it comes to sin. For Israel, their silence to Elijah's question condemned them. How long? 
Nobody said a word. That's the question. Now we see the sacrificial arrangement, secondly. Once Elijah places this question before the people, now he moves on to the arrangement of the contest or the showdown. How it's all going to work out. The teams are Yahweh and his one prophet on the one hand against Baal and his 450 prophets on the other. And once again, we can anticipate that God is going to be doing a miraculous work. We mentioned already that Baal seemingly has home field advantage. 450 to 1. Think about that. 450 to 1. Just the mass numbers. However, on the side of Elijah is the Lord. The Lord God Almighty. The one who created heaven and earth. The one who could open and close the heavens. God Almighty and Elijah. And it's Elijah who explains the arrangement. Two bowls will be selected. One for the prophets of Baal. One for Elijah. They're going to cut the bowl into pieces. The bowls into pieces. Place them on the sacrifice to their God. They're not allowed to put any fire under the bowl as they lay it on the altar. Think of an altar, boys and girls, made up of large stones. And on top of these stones, there would be something of a fire pit, like you would have if you're camping and have a campfire. And you would put wood on it, and on top of the wood, you would put the sacrifice. So that once the sacrifice is burnt, the stones remain, and you can make another sacrifice. You just have to add wood and more meat, another animal. And so this is what they're working with. The whole altar is not going to burn just the wood and the sacrifice. So the arrangement is made. They make the sacrifice. And whichever God answers the call of the people, the call of the prophets, by sending fire, then the conclusion of verse 24, then He is God. He is God in Israel. And this is agreeable to the people. So Elijah tells the prophets of Baal to prepare their bull, and they can sacrifice it first. Because there are many of them. That's the arrangement. This is what's agreed upon. Thirdly, let's look at the sacrifice itself. In verse 26, we see the prophets of Baal prepare the sacrifice and laid it on the altar without putting any fire under it, just as the arrangement stipulated. The goal was to call on Baal, who would then send down fire from heaven miraculously and consume the sacrifice. So the prophets of Baal going go into their calling. They're prophesying. And they call on the name of their God. The prophets of Baal whipped themselves into ecstasy, calling on the name of their God. They cried, O Baal, hear us. Hear us, O Baal. They jumped on the altar. And our text says they leaped about the altar which they had made. Made this nonsense all morning. But as verse 26 says, they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. But there was no response. No one answered. No one answered. Of course no one answered. The reason why no one answered is because there was no one listening. There was no one to answer. Baal is not the true God. He's exactly what Isaiah prophesied about. If you have your Bibles open, turn over to Isaiah 44 where Isaiah speaks of not only false gods, but those who worship them. Time and again throughout the Proverbs, those who worship false gods, those who live in unbelief, are fools. Isaiah 44, look at verse 15. 
It is a man's fuel for burning. It's talking about cutting down a tree. It's a man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. How foolish is this? They cry out to Baal. And what do they hear in response? Silence. No wood, or rather no word from Baal. No fire. No response. Because there's no God listening. In verse 27, Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal. In order to understand this mocking, realize that the gods of Canaan, like Baal, were very human-like. They breathed, they ate, they had arms and legs. They did many of the same things as humans. There's an account of Baal's sister coming to visit Baal, but Baal wasn't there because he was on holidays. He had left, and Baal's sister didn't know where to find him. This is the backdrop for the mockery Elijah hurls with the prophets of Baal. Look at verse 27 of our text. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Elijah gives four possibilities why Baal hasn't answered in a very tongue-in-cheek way. He taunts them. He taunts them. First, maybe he's meditating. He can't hear his prophets. Therefore, in order to wake Baal from his meditation, you have to yell louder. You have to be more belligerent. Yell louder, maybe he'll hear. Secondly, our text says that maybe he is busy. Literally, this means that maybe he has turned off to the side, which means maybe he's relieving himself in the bathroom. Such was the foolishness in the minds of those who would worship a false god. Third, maybe he's traveling. Maybe he can't hear because he's taking some vacation time. He can't hear them because he's gone. Or maybe finally he's asleep. You need to yell louder so that he can be awakened. Now there might be some here this morning who are reading this, or hearing this, that will object to Elijah's mockery of the prophets of Baal and of Baal himself. These are likely the same people who will object in verse 40 of the slaughter of the prophets of Baal. However, Elijah is justified in mocking the prophets of Baal. Elijah, as the servant of the Lord in our text, is expressing God's holy laughter at the foolishness of Baal worshipers. Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He who sits in the heaven shall laugh. It is wrong to think that mockery is always unholy. However, it must be in accord with the Scriptures. You know what's taking place today in Vancouver? The Gay Pride Parade. Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Dancing about, leaping about, much like the prophets of Baal. Celebrating what? 
what? Van Veer says, the mockery must be tested by being exposed to the light of God's holy laughter. That's how we find out whether such mockery, even if weak and short-lived, is a pure reflection of God's holy laughter. Elijah is not taking revenge here for his own purposes. If Elijah was at fault, this would not be taunting or mockery. This would be scorn. Van Fier says again, it would have been scorn if Elijah had not placed the objects of his mockery, that is the people who served idols, in the light of the law and thus under the judgment of the law. All that Elijah is doing in our text is in light of the fact that he is a special office bearer of the Lord appointed and ordained for a specific task. Certainly this doesn't mean that all that Elijah ever did was sinless, but rather that his mockery here is in accord with God's law. Remember, God calls them fools in the Proverbs time and again who worship idols. And this is in line with his work as an office bearer. This mockery that we find in verse 27, we need to place this in its proper context, we must place this in its end judgment perspective. The judgment of the Lord is coming, and it's coming fiercely. You don't have to live too long in our society to know that not only for the church, there's a longing to see their Savior return, but for the wickedness of the world, calling what is evil, good, and calling what is good, evil. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The Lord is coming to judge the living and the dead. This afternoon we'll see the swift hand of justice on the prophets of Baal by the God who holds them in derision. Beloved congregation, the humbling aspect of Elijah's mockery as a reflection of the Lord's mockery of the fool is that all of us, all of you, deserve to be laughed at and mocked by God. All of us naturally are enemies of God, are weak. And yet our faithful God does not mock us. He does not laugh at us, and He does not ever pour out His wrath upon us. He may punish or chastise us because He loves us, but He will not pour His wrath out upon us. God has poured out His judgment on Jesus Christ for our sakes. The prophets of Baal deserve to be mocked. We naturally deserve to be mocked, but we're no longer natural. We are supernaturally regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. Through faith, we are justified in the sight of God. We deserve to be mocked, but we're not. Jesus didn't deserve to be mocked. He didn't deserve to be beaten or spit upon, and yet He was. He didn't answer with fire from heaven. He didn't take Himself off of the cross, though He could have, though people scorned Him. He was scorned to save Himself on the cross, and yet Jesus Christ was obedient all the way to death. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Not one of us is righteous. The law of the mockery of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ for His bride. He is the one who has conquered all. To be sure, God will still mock. 
the haters of God. But His dear children, He draws near. He holds them and keeps them. His bride, even as we're reminded in verse 21, are called back time and again to faithfulness. The mockery heard at Mount Carmel could not save a single soul. But the mockery heard at Golgotha promises that those who believe have everlasting life in Jesus Christ. Praise God. In verses 28 to 29, we see the conclusion of the sacrifice to Baal. The prophets cut themselves and they poured out their blood. This is forbidden for the Israelites as improper mourning for the dead by becoming like the dead. But as a way to worship their God, this is quite unique. Why would Baal hear them more if they cut themselves? If they pour out their blood? Maybe by inflicting pain on themselves, Baal would see how serious they were. Sound like some type of backward religion? Yes. There's many backwards religions today. Think of the man in in Norway. Goes on a shooting spree. Now it's come out that he's part of some secret society. A modern day Knights Templar. Extreme Muslims blow themselves up and kill innocent people for their God. But Allah never answers. Because Allah, like Baal, is not real. He's not real. He's fake. He's made up. He's like a superhero. Batman or Superman or Buzz Lightyear from the Toy Story movies. Buzz Lightyear from the Toy Story movies thinks he's a space ranger. He can fly. He has lasers. Wrong. Superheroes are made up. Buzz Lightyear is just a toy. Baal is nothing. He's nothing. He's carved out of the same tree that they cook their food on. In response to the prophets of Baal, there was no answer. Verse 29 says, Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal did not answer. This afternoon, we'll look at the second half of our text and the second half of the sermon, and we'll see that Yahweh, in fact, does answer. So this sermon is, to be continued. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.